pray as we, uh, as we continue. Father, I just ask that you direct our hearts towards you right now. God, help us to um, hear from you this morning. God, as we just look a little more at um, the background of the Bible and how this book, this library of books came together. Lord, that you just give us wisdom from on high. We ask you for your wisdom right now. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're going to kind of wrap up this message series on God's GPS system, how God guides us through the Bible. And we've also looked last few weeks at just some of the other things God uses to direct us. He'll use good sense. He'll use His Holy Spirit. Um, he'll use uh, opportunities or circumstances at times. Uh, but the question really still remains, why, why this book? Why the Bible? Why, why not look to other things? You know, as Christians, if you've decided to follow Christ, I know some of you are still thinking about making a decision to follow Christ. Um, what I want to do is kind of lay out why would a Christian use this book? This is really a map. It's God's map for his GPS system. This is how he wants to direct our lives. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, above everything else that's out there, why would I use this? I'd like to look at a lot of history today. And so, uh, you know, if you're a history person, you like information and facts, you'll probably be able to track with this really easily. And you'll, you know, maybe be really interested. For others... Um, you know, you might not be. And so just a heads up on this right now. So a lot of information. And so we'll try to move through it fairly rapidly. But I, I'd like to show you a video clip. There's all sorts of alternatives that people use on how to figure out life. When it comes to decisions, we use all sorts of things to figure out how we, how we should make decisions. And so I'd like to show you a clip from a scene out of the uh, sitcom Third Rock from the Sun where there's two characters. There's Mary and there's Dick. And they try to use a help, like a self-help book to solve their problems, okay? And you see this in our society. There's all sorts of self-help books. And so take a look at how, this, how they kind of struggle with this self-help book. Mary, you'll be happy to know that I'm deep into step two. I have successfully eliminated all the negative relationships in my life. Judith, Strudwick, the Chancellor... I've even stopped yelling at the little voice that comes out of the clown's head when I'm at the drive-thru. Wow, you've really grown. Yes, I have, Mary. I I'm almost perma-happy, Dick. <gasps> anyway, your history. What? Yeah, you're gone. I can't be in this relationship anymore. Too many ups and downs. You're breaking up with me because of this book? Yeah, I'm afraid so. I know it's hard, Mary. No, it's not hard, Dick. It's just not happening. What? Well, what I've learned from this book is that on the Ferris wheel of life, I am the carny holding the throttle. <laughs> I choose not to break up with him. Really? Can you do that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you have a tendency to underestimate the, the sickness of the codependent relationship. And we're in one, mister, and you're not going anywhere. In, in that case, uh, I need to uh, um, step off the desperation treadmill and frolic through the forest of solitude with myself, L. For your information, it is the sprightly inner happiness that you achieve when you spend time with your loving and supportive self. But you would know that if you read the book. 
I'm at the helm. Calm, calm. I'm at the helm. I'm at the helm. Calm, calm. So they were struggling to interpret the self-help book. Okay, they had different views. They, one said, well, "This is what it says." Another said, "This is what it says." This is a very common issue that that comes up when we're using, you know, different books that that claim to help us. Um, because the question comes up: Under what authority does this book stand? And so, with self-help books, you know, you could Google on Amazon.com, you'd find over 200,000 different self-help books. And again, the question would be raised, how do I know which one I can really trust? How do, how do I know which one has authority? So what I want to do with the Bible is I kind of want to put it under the microscope again and ask some questions of it. Like, why are we using these books? Why are, you know, where did this library of books come from? Where's the authority? Um, there's, there's three questions in particular that I'd like to answer. And I have to grab something over here. Um, so you'll find them. There's a listening guide here in your outline or in your bulletin. And so let's deal with these questions. The first question is this. Why do we believe something that we have not seen? Why do we do that? Why do we believe something we have not seen? How many of you believe that the earth is approximately 25,000 miles around the equator? Everyone's like, uh. <laughs> That's news to some of us. You know, but some of you are wondering, is this a trick question? Is he going to make fun of me if I do that? You know, uh, but, you know, we're told in our educational experience that the earth is approximately 25,000 miles around the equator. Okay, that's what we're told. And we believe them. You know, I've never traveled that 25,000 miles, but we do, you know, take what we've been told and believe that. Uh, We also, you know, we believe in characters. You know, we believe in a man named Napoleon. Uh, he was the leader in France. And, you know, have anybody ever read about Napoleon? Yeah, some of you have. Why do you believe that there was Napoleon? Why do you think he existed? Stories? Little man syndrome? Do you, have you ever met Napoleon? Anybody? Do you know anybody that's ever met Napoleon? We all know a couple of folks that met Napoleon. Bill and Ted, right? But, you know, were you, were you in France in those days? No, none of us were there. Do you know anybody that was there? No. I mean, maybe some of us have some French ancestors that lived way back then and were somehow connected, and so you can verify that your great, 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 you know, great, great, I mean, I don't even know when he lived, but, you know. But what we do is we trust. We trust these stories that are handed down to us because someone told you, that he existed, and you believed that the person that told you was reliable. So there's two things I want to point out. We assume that those telling us are reliable. When people tell us things, we believe that they are. But sometimes they're just not reliable. We all know that sometimes people lie to us. You know, sometimes major statements are made in our society, and then later we find out, people backtrack and they say, you know what, I made a big statement in the public arena, and I lied about it. And we're willing to forgive people, but that happens. You know, textbooks have been written on lies at times. And so, but we trust people because we assume, you know, they're telling me the truth. I can rely on them. And then secondly, it fits with what we've experienced. Okay? It fits with what we've experienced. Experience itself 
is a teacher in life. And we, we learn things or we hear things and then we experience things and then we say, you know what, that's, that's really true. I've experienced that. They're reliable. It's true. But, you know, if somebody tells us something that's absolute, absolutely ridiculous, you know, we think, ah, that's not anything like real life, then we reject it. Okay, it doesn't fit with our experience. We reject those things. Parents, you tell your kids certain things. My parents said, you know, don't touch snakes. Don't play with snakes. We lived in, I lived in Northern California, and there was a lot of rattlesnakes in the summers. And we would explore in the summer times, and every summer folks would say, you know, just be careful out there and don't, don't try to go play with snakes. You know, if you hear a rattle or whatever, run away. Well, one day I'm, I'm in, a, in a creek, and we're building a dam, and we're taking rocks off the side walls. Sure enough, pull one off, there's a coil of snakes. And I, I didn't need to be bit. I didn't need to experience the bite of the rattlesnake to, to know if I should run. I just cried and I ran straight home. I got home. I, I didn't need to believe it. Later on in life, as an adult, someone said, here, hold this, this snake in your hand. It's, it's a pet. I'm like, I don't hold snakes. I, you know, it doesn't make sense. And no, it's been de-venomized or whatever. You know, it doesn't bite. It's our pet. Okay, put it in my hand. It bites me. I drop it on the floor. I should have trusted my parents, you know. I, had, I didn't need to have experienced that to trust them because what they were saying was reliable. It didn't have venom, you know. It was really a pet, but it bit me for some reason. And, uh, but we take these two things. We believe things because we trust the people and it lines up with experience. And so when it comes to the Bible, you know, we're trusting that the authors of the Bible, we're trusting that the process that God, you know, it says that the, the scriptures, you know, were from God himself. They were God-breathed. They were exhaled from God. We looked at that last week. We're trusting that this process is, is, is reliable. And it lines up in life. If you've decided to follow Christ and begin to use the scripture as a guide for your life, it's because partially you've seen the truth carried out in real life. You've seen it match up with, re- with reality as it relates to your parenting, as it relates to your finances. And maybe you, you've not taken those steps, but I'd encourage you to try it out. See if God, through experience, would confirm the truth of these things. I'd like to answer another question, though. Why, why are the books of the Bible authoritative? Why are these books authoritative? There's, this is a library of 66 books, okay? <clears throat> and... The main reason is we accept the Old Testament and the New Testament because of Jesus. He put his stamp of approval on the Old Testament and he backed up or supported the New Testament. He he was God himself. He He came in the form of man. He was killed, laid in a tomb, and he rose on the third day just as the scriptures had prophesied. He's God himself. And he accepted the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and he backed up the New Testament. So to Jesus... Um, the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, God Himself was speaking to us. He He believed this was God's word to man. And there's some things I want to just outline here. First thing is this: He accepted the whole Hebrew Bible, not just parts of it. Sometimes we want to take sections and say, you know what? I disagree with that. I don't I don't think that's right. And we just want to rip it right out and throw it. And Jesus, He, he accepted the whole Hebrew Bible. You see it in a statement to a group of people who had been pretty antagonistic towards him. This is Luke chapter 11, 50 and 51. You can call it on the screen. 
It says, therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all. Abel was a man who worshipped God rightly, and he died. He was killed for it. His brother Cain killed him. In the very first book of the Bible, you find this in Genesis, Zechariah is a godly man who was killed. He was a, he was a prophet used by God. He spoke out in times when people were off track, and the leadership allowed him to be killed. One of the kings stood and watched as he was stoned to death. It was right there in the temple courts. And, <clears throat> you know, so what Jesus is saying here is from the beginning, from Abel, the beginning of creation of man to Zechariah. Zechariah, um, the, the scriptures record his death in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 17, uh, 24, I think. But in that book, that in the Hebrew Bible is the last book. The Old Testament in our Bibles, is, uh, it goes Genesis to Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles, the, ends, the end of the writings was the end of the Hebrew Bible. So what he was saying, with the Bible that he accepted, the Old Testament, he's saying from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. He said, he's counting that all as true. Okay? He's, he's confirming that that was truly God's word. That was the scriptures. He accepts it all. True from the beginning to the end. Another thing is Jesus considered the Old Testament to be God speaking. We looked at this last week, so I'm just going to move past this. But he, he would often say, or these verses would come up talking about how the Spirit would speak through David. So the Spirit of God would say this through this man. And so he confirmed that this was God speaking through these men. Another thing that Jesus did is he condemned traditions that contradicted the Old Testament. Sometimes practices would come up around him, and he would come and oppose those who would apply traditions that did not fall in line with the Scripture. At one point in a dialogue with a group of religious leaders, they, you know, they were trying to do something, holding up their traditions because it was very, very convenient for them, but it allowed them to take advantage and neglect their parents. They should have been taking care of their parents. Instead, they were just doing what was best for them. And so Jesus says this to them in Mark 7. He says, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition. He's saying, you, you, you know, over time what you've done is you've developed stuff that does not match up with what's in the Old Testament. Because again, he's confirming the Old Testament is God's word. This is how God has spoken to us. And he's saying, you violated those commands. So in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament... Jesus, he affirms the Old Testament. He puts a stamp of approval on it. That gives us reason to believe. If you believe Jesus is a reliable source, then that adds some value. It should add some value in our minds to why we accept the Old Testament. Um, also, Jesus is the one who backed up the New Testament. He's the one behind the New Testament. If Jesus has spoken words, if you believe that he is God, then his spoken words were authoritative. Also, his written the record of his, of his written or of his, of his spoken words are also authoritative. So the New Testament, in the Gospels, you've got stories, things that Jesus said. If what he said is truly authoritative, then those who wrote down what he said, those who told the stories, those who wrote those things down of the statements he made or the messages he gave, then those words themselves are also authoritative. He, he, because he was God. They tell us 
how truth works. They tell us how reality works. His words truly you know, are God speaking to us. Uh, Jesus commissioned the apostles. This is another thing as far as evidence. He commissioned, he sent out the apostles to speak. Okay? And what he did was he sent them out to speak his words. He sent them out with his message. Okay? This is a Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He said, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of it, the end of the age. His commission is to go out with his authority and with his message and to share those things. Not to share their own plan or their own way of living, but to take his words and to apply that to life. And to share those specific things to the people that they were around. So again, he commissioned them with a specific message. Another thing is he promised the Holy Spirit. He promised that God's Spirit would guide them to remember and understand these things. Um, So as they're going along, there's a passage in John. We're just going to move past this. But there's a passage in John that, that... Jesus said, you know, I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to guide you. He's going to help you remember the things that I've said. And that's part of, of, again, why their message was authoritative is because God's Holy Spirit was working in these writers and through them to bring recollection of the, the things, the exact things that Jesus wanted to be communicated so that they were passed on accurately. The apostles... They didn't invent things. Sometimes we would assume, oh, these, these writers, they just kind of invented. They came up with stories. You hear, you hear that the Bible is just a bunch of people who've made up a bunch of stories, and along the way, through years and years and years, it's gotten off track, or it's, got, it's changed. It, it, it's kind of like the game Telephone. You've ever played the game Telephone? You know, you start in a circle and you tell somebody, Susie is wearing red shirt with blue pants, and she likes Bobby. And then by the time it gets over here, Bobby likes Susie's red pants and his friend Jim. It's like, what? Where did that come from? Because it started with this one message, but over time and through transmission, you know, it just breaks down. The message doesn't... That's the assumption of what happens with Scripture. How can we really trust this thing? Through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you're saying that these words haven't changed? That's ridiculous. That's, that's, the, that's the thought. So I want to kind of look again through the, through the New Testament and look at some of the claims that the, that the writers wrote about what they were doing, about this process. It turns out, you know, we think, oh, there's probably hundreds of years that have lapsed um, from the events to when they were written down. But in fact, the books of the New Testament date from between AD 45. Jesus was crucified in sometime around 33-ish. Well, Within about 12 years, the, the, the New Testament began to be written down okay, and penned. From A.D. 45 to A.D. 90, there's about 45 years where the New Testament was, um, was put together, was written down. Okay? So that's all within that generation. These are all people who had been there. These are eyewitnesses of these accounts. It wasn't like it was eyewitnesses who told it to their to their kids, and then it passed down three or four generations, and then finally someone wrote it down. These were the eyewitnesses. Look at what Peter said. Peter, one of the closest to Jesus, one of the authors that God used to pen the Bible. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told, about, when we told you about the power 
and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, they, these were eyewitness writers. They had been there. It wasn't just stuff that would make for a great story someday. These people had actually been there. They were concerned for accuracy. They were concerned for accuracy. I've got four or five statements out of the New Testament from some of the authors. Look at what, what some of them said. Luke, he wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And he's one of Paul's friends, one of the guys that helped start churches in northern Mediterranean. And he said this. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, he's a doctor, he's a scientist, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's how he starts his gospel, the gospel of Luke. He just says, this is, you know, this is stuff, this isn't just stories that can't be trusted. He, he got his sources, he, you know, his source was Paul. He, he learned the stories of Jesus through Paul, who was one of, again, he did not walk as a disciple, but Jesus appeared before him. And Paul knew these stories. He was a student, so he learned very quickly as in his training. He was learning the scripture. He was learning the things that Jesus had done as well to fulfill what happened in the Old Testament. But here's Luke, an educated man. He's saying, hey, I've done my homework. I put tremendous research into this because I want to make sure that what you've got is, is legitimate. Then you have a statement out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. Paul, he's a man who killed Christians. He hated Jesus and Christians. And so God appeared to him, or Jesus appeared to him. He was converted, and he started, he started churches all across the northern Mediterranean. And he writes this letter to the people in Corinth, one of those cities, Corinth was kind of a, a corrupt place. It would be about the size of Los Angeles with the heart of Las Vegas. So just very, very corrupt place. And uh, it was a rough place to live in as well. Okay? Um, this is what he said. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, According to the scriptures. He uses that phrase like, this is exactly what we were told would happen. And that he appeared to Peter and then, and then to the twelve, the, the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or some have died. So he makes this statement in the letter about the things that he was writing. Okay? He's saying, here's the facts. It lines up exactly with what was supposed to happen. And what he's saying is, you know, I've taken this down and I've been very precise. I've been very careful to write down just what happened. You know, and a matter of fact, there's about 500 people who saw him risen. And they're still, you know, he said, most of them are still alive. So if you want, send some delegates over to, the, the sense here is, send some delegates over to, to talk to them, interview them. There's people that can verify that these things actually happened. Paul, Paul was very, he didn't invent. He passed on what was given to him. First Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, he says, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. And it's requ required that those who have been given a trust, they must prove faithful. So he wasn't just trying to pass on a message that would get everybody excited. He wanted to pass on the accurate things. He wanted to transmit things accurately. Last, I, I wanted you to see this charge to his protege, 
Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, And the things that you have heard me say, he's telling a guy who's going to take the churches and lead them for the next few decades. Okay, He's saying, The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those things to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. He's saying, don't mess around with this message. He's saying, take the things you've learned, find some men, build those things into those men. We've got to make sure that this message does not get watered down, does not change. There's just tremendous concern for accuracy of the transmission of these things. Because these people realize, we've been given a commission by God himself. And it, it is very, very important that we're careful with this, this stewardship, this message that we have. Because the future of the church really depended on the accuracy of these statements, the accuracy of the scriptures. So they weren't, invent, they weren't inventing. What they did, they would oftentimes apply. They merely applied Jesus' teaching. Uh, there's a passage where Jesus talks about marriage and divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, um, you know, there's a statement where Paul says, you know, I, or he says, the Lord, not I, says this. He makes a statement. And then... And then he makes a statement here. To the rest I say to this, I say this, I, not the Lord. So now he's applying, we're not going to really get into this verse, but he's using the, the principle that he's using Jesus' exact teaching and he's applying a principle to a situation in their, in their day. Okay? Because he, he's basing it off the original teaching of Jesus and he's applying it to a situation. Because Jesus didn't speak directly about everything, but he spoke in principle about things. And so Paul was basically applying the teaching to situations. But again, they're not inventing. They're not trying to mess around with the teaching. Last thing is this. The rest of the New Testament, it does not contain a teaching that's not already present in principle in the Gospels. You're not going to find things that, that are like, wow, this doesn't line up with something I've heard of in the past. In the, in, the, in the letters of the New Testament, which is the bulk of the New Testament, after the four Gospels, you have one more history and then you have some letters. Those letters are based off the teachings that you find inside the Gospels. They're applications of the teachings. These aren't just stories. This is really God's map of reality. The last question I want to deal with is this. Why these 66 books and not others? Okay, Just very quickly... Um, there were other books written in the ancient times. There were certainly other books, people writing about these events, but not all of them have found their way into the Bible. Okay, certain ones were excluded. Certain ones did not make the cut. And um, whenever we start talking about this whole idea of, of what's in the Bible and what's not, there's this word that comes up. It's called canon, the canon of Scripture. And you have the definition there. A canon is a measure. It's a Greek word that means measure, rule, or standard. This is the idea of there are certain books that measure up to Scripture and certain books that don't. And those other books were rejected. Um, the canon of Scripture is the books by which the truth is really judged. Okay? Certain books are just not true. They didn't, they didn't measure up to be placed inside the Bible, to be um, verified as authoritative. And the basis that they used for canonicity or for, for making it into the canon was it had to have recognized authority. In order for a book to be considered scripture, it needed to have a stamp of authority behind it. Okay? Uh, the Old Testament books, they were authoritative because they were recognized by the Jews. The Jews 
they, they had set their stamp of approval on certain books. 39 books were accepted as the Old Testament. That was the Hebrew Bible. There was 39. The books of Moses were the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, those were known as the Book of Law. As the Jews came together, they recognized this is truly God speaking here. This is God speaking. And this is the history of our people. And then as history rolled on in the Old Testament, you have prophets and you have writings. And uh, different prophets lived between about 800 and 500 B.C. And within just a couple of hundred years after their deaths, those and their writings were approved by the Jewish people. And so a few hundred years before Jesus came, they had already pretty much closed the canon for, or the Jews had already accepted certain books and rejected others. There was a set group that made up the Old Testament. And at the time of Jesus, certain men came together and they actually decided, we're going to actually write our list. And, and things started lining up. There was one man here, there's a picture of him. His name is Philo of Alexandria. <coughs> he was a Jewish writer. He wrote around 40 AD, right around the time of Jesus' death. He accepted all the books that you find in the Old Testament. The 39 books of the, of the Old Testament, those were the books that he lists as Scripture, as the Hebrew Bible. He doesn't accept what's called the Apocrypha. Has anybody ever heard that term, the Apocrypha? Apocrypha are extra books that are not included in the, um, in the Bible that we use. But some churches have decided to include some additional books. Um, but we recognize the 39 books because it lines up with Jewish leaders from the past. So this guy, he accepted all 39. Another guy named Josephus, he was a historian. And his job was to accurately account for what was going on. Towards the first century, he accepted, again, all the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible, but he rejected the Apocrypha. It was not in his accepted list. He's a major figure for Jewish history. Um, there was also a council that came together, and they decided, we're going to put it down in writing for the church. It was a place called Jamnia in 90 A.D., and they came up with the list, again, 39 books of our Old Testament. But we use the Hebrew Old Testament because Jesus confirmed it. That's the main reason. We use it because Jesus confirmed it. As far as the New Testament books, what happened there was the New Testament books, they were gathered together as the apostles started dying off. Okay? They had written their works, and then people recognized, we need to get these things collected and put down. We need to decide which books are truly the scripture for the New Testament, the 27 books, before these men actually die. So as they were getting older in age, they started making sure that letters and gospels could be copied and sent out to the different New Testament churches because so everybody could have copies, accurate copies of the original letters. They made sure that that happened before, before these men died to verify that these things weren't changing. Um, and then later, issues came up. There was, the New Testament books were, were chosen because certain issues arose. Uh, one was public reading in the church. They wanted to make sure that they, they weren't sure what to ask people to, to preach and to teach on. So they needed a list that they could follow. First Timothy records this. Until I come, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. But if they didn't have an accurate list of the 20s, if they didn't have decided upon which books were to be read, you know, they, they needed to begin to collect these things. They needed to begin to decide which was truly Scripture, which was the truth of the New Testament. Because how, how else would we know what to read? Another thing is false teachers started rising up. This 
Jesus talked about this happening. Some of the church leaders talked about this happening. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. If you skip down to verse 3, it talks about the false teachers. It says, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So these false teachers, they rose up within the church. They weren't people who, what they were was, they were people who wanted to walk with God, and slowly they, they drifted away in their teaching. And their teaching began to become untruthful. And so in order to protect the church from false teaching, they had to come up with what was acceptable. They needed a standard. They needed the canon of Scripture to know what were the 20 set, what were the books that were truly God speaking to us. The last thing is persecution. Persecution drove the church to decide also which books would be the New Testament. People were dying. Over time, Christians were being killed by the Jews and by the Romans by the government, not, not all Romans and not all Jewish people were bad people, but there were groups from within that were killing off the Christians. You've probably heard about the persecution of Christians in the Roman Colosseum. So here's a, here's a picture of just Christians about to be, you know, killed and devoured by wild animals in Rome. Um, you know, the question came up very practically. If someone comes to my house and I claim to follow Christ, if someone comes to my house knocks on my door, which books do I just say, here, you can, have, you can have these? And which books am I willing to die for? And so, again, very practically speaking, the church had to decide what was Scripture because they were willing to die for the Scriptures. They weren't willing to die for everything that was floating around in that environment in that time. Uh, just to wrap up, there was some criteria for being chosen. There needed to be apostolic authorship. The apostles needed to be involved in writing. That was important, but it wasn't the final thing. There needed to be some inherent authority. Like, within the documents and stuff, within the writings, they needed to be authoritative in and of themselves, as evidenced by wide and continued usage. Like, the church needed to be using this stuff. It needed to be making a difference. And then, just last, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. There was a confirmation that God and His Spirit puts on certain put on books and not on others. You can read about that in John chapter 10, just how Christians would recognize what was truly the voice of God. I wanted to introduce this stuff to you. It's hard to kind of sometimes track when it comes to his, the history of these things because it's really important to understand why we accept the Bible as authoritative and not just throw it out or, or put it on par with everything else that's available to help ourselves. It's really important that you understand it's not just important to know the reasons behind how the Scripture came together because following Jesus is much more than just a bunch of reasons. It's about taking the Scripture, using it to deal directly with your life. Each of us deal with things each and every day that if we'll consider this book to be truly God's Word to us, we can really get some help. We can get help as far as the issues that we really face in our relationships, in the way that we deal with our finances. Just in real life, God wants us to know that with confidence we can trust what he said here. There's a last verse I'd like to share with you, Proverbs 35 and 6. It says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. There's a very strong statement there in Proverbs 30. What it's saying is we're not to monkey around or mess around with the words of God. We're not to say, you know, Certain people have made their own Bibles, and they truly 
Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, had his own Bible, the Jefferson Bible, where he had certain sections which he believed was, was truly Jesus and certain sections he thought was just made up supernatural stuff. And, you know, we can do that with the Bible, but I'd encourage you to just trust the truth that you find in the Scriptures. Trust that this is God speaking to us, and it's for our lives today. Our, our GPS is in our car. You know, they're pretty reliable, and you don't have to do anything. It just does it all for you. But the Bible's not like that. It doesn't just do it for you. You actually have to, you have to dig into it yourself. And so that, that's my encouragement, is to dig into the Scriptures for yourself. Check these things out and see if experience will line up. You know, experience is really, truly a teacher. And so as you begin to put these things into practice, I believe God will come through and show you that this stuff can be trusted. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you once again for your word. Thank you for how complete it is, how you've placed authority on this book, Lord, this collection of of holy books inspired by you. Father, thank you that this is trustworthy and that we really can base our lives and the decision we make on on these principles, on these statements, God on things that you've truly, truly spoken to us about. So God, I pray that as we deal with real-life struggles and issues, God, I pray that we wouldn't reach for other things, but God, that we would dig into the Scriptures for ourselves. Since no one else can do it for us, God, I pray that you'd, you would just help us, God, to get motivated to get into your Word, to learn what you have to say, God. In Jesus' name, amen.